this is the one you got extra sleep, so we should all be here this morning. Unless you're like me and you took advantage of the extra hour and you stayed up later, but you know. Well, uh, before we get into the message today, I do want to talk a little bit about how today and next Sunday are two Sundays that uh, churches kind of in the West have set aside to remember the persecuted church around the world. Uh, today is called the International Day of Prayer for the Persecuted Church. And um, this might not be on the forefront of, of our mind often because of where we live and the freedoms and liberties we enjoy, but more than 300 million or one in eight Christians live in places where they face persecution for their faith. Uh, last year, on average, daily, 13 Christians were killed for their faith. 13 Christians were unjustly detained or imprisoned. Five Christians were abducted, on average, every day last year alone. So before we jump into the message this morning, uh, I want to take a moment to, to reflect, to think about our brothers and sisters around the world, and to pray for our brothers and sisters around the world. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pray through a liturgy called A Liturgy for Those Enduring Lasting Pain. It's from a book called Every Moment is Holy. And then what I would like all of us to do together uh, after I pray through this is to read corporately out loud Matthew 5, 3 through 12 as we remember and reflect on uh, the persecuted church around the world. And I'd like to talk for the men in the room just for a second. 1 Timothy 2.8 encourages us as men to lift holy hands while we are praying together. So I'd like to encourage us to do that. Now, there's nothing extra special about raising your hand while you're praying. It doesn't get your prayer this much closer. But what it does is it's an outward symbol of how we are leading ourselves into prayer. Sometimes performing outward actions like lifting our hands while we pray helps our minds to focus and it helps our heart to focus. And as we pray together as a church, I'd like to encourage us as men to do that, to lift our hands while I lead us in prayer. It's a way of saying we are all praying this together as a church family uh, for our brothers and sisters around the world. So let's pray, and then we will read Matthew 5. O Christ, who endured the anguish of the garden and the agony of the cross, willingly taking upon yourself the sum of all our suffering, be with our brothers and sisters and hold them now, for they are unable to bear this pain alone. Either give them respite from this agony or give them grace to endure what they cannot on their own. Meet them in the secret place of their torment, O Jesus, which no other person save you can know or touch, for you alone have already carried the full weight of it, sharing in this moment and in all moments of their suffering and death, that they might also share the fullness of your resurrection. We thank you for the promise that you will not abandon them there, O Christ. Do not leave them to face this hurt alone, However intense their affliction grows, let your presence and power be manifest ever more profoundly. Even if their pain, even if this affliction and tribulation and persecution they are facing expands to fill all their awareness so that they can hardly move or speak or form a co coherent thought, even then fling wide your doors and draw them into your place of refuge, O Lord. There, gather them into your arms carrying them to your hiding place, and tend to their distress. Amen. Now let's corporately read Matthew 5, verses 3 through 12. Uh, if you want to pull it up on your device, I'm reading from the Christian Standard Bible. We also have it up here on the screens. Uh, but let's read this together, Matthew 5, beginning in verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. 
Blessed are the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. You are blessed when they insult you and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. For that is how they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Amen. Um, I would encourage you to continue to be in prayer, uh, not just on these days that we have set aside to remember them, but as a regular part of your prayer routine, or I would encourage you to put them on your prayer list. In our church Facebook group, I shared a pretty lengthy document and resource. It's a prayer list, but it's also a resource that kind of highlights the top 10 countries Christians face persecution, shares a little bit about what they're going through and how they can, uh, how we can be in prayer for them. Uh, if you're not on Facebook, I'll email that out also this week, but let me encourage us as a church to really take this moment of reflection and then carry that with us so that we can be in prayer for our brothers and sisters around the world. Well, I'm excited this week to move into chapter 3 of Philippians. Uh, in chapter 2, where we've been the last several weeks, we have learned about the theology of Jesus and what it looks like to live as he did. And as we move into chapter 3 this morning, uh, the focus shifts to knowing Jesus, not just knowing about him, but really knowing him in deep and profound ways. And throughout this chapter, Paul reminds us that there is nothing glorious as knowing Christ. We will never regret spending our life pursuing him, pursuing knowing him more and more. So let's turn into Philippians chapter number three this morning. I will read us through the entire chapter as we've been doing throughout this series. I'm excited to begin jumping into a new one this morning. And then what we're going to do is we're going to dive just into verse number one and unpack what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord. Let's read. The Bible says, Philippians 3.1, In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. To write to you again about this is no trouble for me, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for the dogs, watch out for the evil workers, watch out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision, the ones who worship by the Spirit of God, boast in Christ Jesus, and do not put confidence in the flesh. Although I have reason for confidence in the flesh. If anyone else thinks he has grounds for the confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of a tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew born of Hebrews, regarding the law, a Pharisee. Regarding zeal, persecuting the church. Regarding the righteousness that is in the law, blameless. But everything that was a gain to me, I have considered to be a loss because of Christ. More than that, I also consider everything to be a loss in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. Because of him, I have suffered the loss of all things and consider them as dung, so that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own from the law, but one that is through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. My goal is to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, assuming that I'll somehow reach the resurrection from among the dead. Not that I've already reached the goal or I'm already perfect, but I make every effort to take hold of it because I have been taken hold of by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, 
forgetting what is behind, reaching forward to what is ahead, I pursue as my goal the prize promised by God's heavenly call in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let all of us who are mature think this way. And if you think differently about anything, God will reveal this also to you. In any case, we should live up to whatever truth we have attained. Join in imitating me, brothers and sisters, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the, the example you have in us. For I have often told you, and now say again with tears, that many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their stomach. Their glory is in their shame. They're focused on earthly things, but our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly wait for a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ. He will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body by the power that enables him to subject everything to himself. And then I'm going to read four one because it's part of the same paragraph. So then, my dearly loved and longed for brothers and sisters, my joy and crown in this manner stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. Now, what does it mean to rejoice in the Lord? Uh, joy is an interesting concept. The Greek word for rejoice here in verse 1 means simply to be glad or have joy. It's used over 70 times throughout the New Testament. It's most often translated as rejoice or be glad or joy. Uh, oftentimes, though, when we're talking about joy, we'll kind of compare it to happiness. Uh, a few weeks ago, I talked about there's a difference between being happy because you're in Disneyland and being happy because you're in Christ. Happiness comes from the Latin word fortuna, which is where we get the word fortune. So the idea with happiness is as the good fortunes go up, so does your happiness. And conversely, as your good fortunes go down, so does your happiness. But we'll often say joy is not based on our circumstances. But if you were to just open up a dictionary, go to dictionary.com and look up the definition of joy. Joy is the emotion of great delight or happiness caused by something exceptionally good or satisfying. Keen pleasure or elation. So based on the definition of the words, it seems joy is tied to something exceptionally good or satisfying. It's different than happiness. Happiness is solely based on the happenings of the moment. But joy is attached to something deeper, something more fulfilling, something that's exceptionally good. Uh, but verse 1 doesn't tell us to simply rejoice, period. It says to rejoice in the Lord. This gives us as believers... An important clarification, and it leads to our first point this morning, the distinctiveness of Christian joy. The distinctiveness of Christian joy. Christian joy is distinct but it, because it takes the source off our joy. Those exceptionally good things that are really satisfying, that produce joy in our heart. It takes the source of our joy off of a circumstance or a thing that can be lost or a thing that can be changed, and it places it on Christ. Pastor Steve Lawson, uh, in his commentary, Philippians for You, said, Joy is the supernatural excitement we experience in God himself. It involves gladness of heart in the things of God. It results from taking greatest pleasure in Christ and his kingdom above all other things. It's an exalting or an exhilaration in the soul that arises from a heart that is filled to overflowing with the love of God and his son, Jesus Christ. Now, I want to be careful that we don't confuse rejoicing in the Lord with a bubbly personality or upbeat feelings. A lot of times people's personality just tends to be more, the glass is half full, they're bubbly, they're more like joy in the cartoon inside out than what biblical joy actually is. Christian joy is not the power of positive thinking. It's not being a glasses half full type of person. As one pastor put it, 
Joy is the emotion of our salvation. Rejoicing in the Lord is the emotion that we experience as we are fixing our eyes on Jesus and on his goodness and on his promises and as we are fixing our, our, our minds and our hearts on his heart of goodness towards us. When we meditate on the cross and our hearts become full, that is Christian joy. We can't conjure that. We can't fake that. You can't just be like, okay, I'm going to put on these rosy glasses and just pretend like everything's okay. That's not Christian joy. Joy is a glorious gladness and deep delight in the person of Jesus Christ. Paul helps us understand this by readdressing believers. He starts verse number one by saying, in addition, my brothers and sisters. Now, by beginning chapter three, what he's saying is, in addition to what I've already told you in chapter number two, so he's kind of switching gears here a little bit. In addition to what we've been talking about, we're going to start a new train of thought. And as he specifically addresses his brothers and sisters in Christ, he's showing us that our joy as believers is unique. It's distinct. The type of joy that we're being called to isn't available to everyone. So if you're here this morning and you've never believed in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, you've never confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, this type of joy is not available to you by birthright, but it can be. Peter tells us this in 2 Peter 3, 7, 8, and 9. By the same word, the present heavens and earth, that's where we live now, are stored up for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. You say, Pastor Nick, we're talking about joy. Why are you talking about judgment here? Bear with me. He says, Peter goes on and say, Dear friends, don't overlook this one fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years like one day. The Lord does not delay his promise, as some understand delay, but he is patient with you, not wanting, to any, not wanting any to perish, but all to come to repentance. So because God is perfect, he has to judge sin. He cannot allow wickedness to have free reign. It would not be right for him to do so, but he doesn't want you to perish. He wants you to come to repentance. God the Father wants you to know what it means to be able to rejoice in the Lord, to be able to have an anchor for your soul, Hebrews says, so that you can have joy no matter what you're facing. He wants you to experience the type of joy Paul is talking here about in Philippians 3.1. If you don't know what it means to have a relationship with Jesus, let me encourage you. See me after the service. See one of the regulars around here. We would love nothing more than to show you what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. You can experience authentic Christian joy. Because the type of joy that we're talking about is made possible only because we are in Jesus Christ. We also see throughout Scripture, specifically Galatians, that this type of joy is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22, but the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Now, how does the Holy Spirit connect with us enjoying Jesus? Well, as we look to the person and work of Jesus, he is glorified in our eyes and we experience joy. Joy is a part of the fruit of the Spirit because it's the Spirit that glorifies Jesus. Jesus said this in John 16.14. He said, he, the Holy Spirit or the Comforter, will glorify me because he will take from what is mine and declare it to you. So as we yield to the Holy Spirit, and as we read his word and allow the Holy Spirit to declare to us the things of God, Jesus is glorified in our eyes. So here's the process. We're commanded to rejoice in the Lord, right? 3-1 is a command, rejoice in the Lord. But we don't have the power to do that on our own. The com- this command of scripture reminds us of our dependence on the Spirit. The Spirit glorifies Jesus in our minds and in our hearts as we Read the word of God as we pray, as we fellowship, as we sing, as we serve, as we think on Jesus and all that he has done for us. Then our hearts become captivated by the goodness and majesty of Jesus and we experience joy. 
the Holy Spirit causes us to experience joy as he glorifies Jesus in our hearts and in our minds. This is why it's a fruit of the Spirit. But the reason God can command joy, so if it's a fruit of the Spirit, why is it also command? That's confusing. The reason God can command joy is because this process does not happen without our consent. We can quench the Holy Spirit. And so Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, commands us, rejoice in the Lord. Now, Jesus tells us in John 15 one of the ways we can pursue our joy. So we see, as we're going to read these verses, there is a pursuit in our lives to experience joy. John 15, 9, 10, and 11. As the Father has loved me, I have also loved you. Remain in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be complete. Joy is something that we pursue. If you believe the Christian life is a life of misery, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> I don't know how else to say that. Yes, we have to say no to a lot of things in order to follow Jesus, but Jesus tells us the result of following me, the result of yielding to the Holy Spirit, is joy. Now, this doesn't mean joy is the only emotion that we experience either. I mean, Ecclesiastes is still in the Bible. Ecclesiastes 3.4 tells us there's a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. Sorrow and lament has a very good place in the Christian life. Righteous anger has its place in the life of a Christian. When we get angry at the injustices that we see around the world, that anger is a right response. It's a right feeling. It's a right emotion. Sorrow and lament. There's a whole book of the Bible called Lamentations. These other emotions are appropriate in their place. Paul is not telling us we're only allowed to experience joy or one emotion. What he is telling us is that even in the worst moments of life, we can rejoice in the Lord. Because the anchor for our joy never changes and is the most real reality in our life. I think Habakkuk paints a beautiful picture of this for us. Habakkuk 3, verses 17 through 19. The prophet says, Though the fig tree does not bud and there is no fruit on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, Though the flocks disappear from the pen and there are no herds in the stall, yet I will celebrate in the Lord. I will rejoice in the God of my salvation. The Lord, my Lord, is my strength. And he makes my feet like those of a deer and enables me to walk on mountain heights. This is not ignoring our problems or sticking our head in the sand. It's a realization that even in our sorrow, we can rejoice in the Lord. Now the second sentence of verse 1, Paul says something pretty interesting also about joy. Let's look at verse number 1 again. In addition, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. Second sentence, to write to you again about this is no trouble for me and is a safeguard for you. This leads us to our second thought this morning. We've seen the distinctiveness of Christian joy. It's available to us because we're in Christ. We also see the safeguard of Christian joy. Now, we tend to think of joy as this nice bonus to being Christian, like it's the cherry on top of the Sunday. We don't often look at it for what it is, a matter of obedience that acts as a guardrail in our life. So why is joy a guardrail? How is joy a guardrail? Well, joy, among other things, and we're going to look at some other safeguards next week, but joy, among other things, is a safeguard because it reveals what we're focused on. It reveals what we value. Christian joy or the lack of it reveals the direction of our affection. 
Jesus is worth being filled with joy about. He is worthy of the excitement of our souls. His salvation is so amazing that our hearts should burst with joy. I mean, he died for us. I love the way Paul is telling us, he's saying, rejoice again. For me to tell you rejoice again, it's no trouble for me. And it's a safeguard for you. When I'm struggling to rejoice in the Lord, that tells me that I'm attaching my affections to the wrong thing. It doesn't mean when I'm sorrowing I'm attaching my affections to the wrong thing, but when I think I can't even rejoice in the Lord right now, that should be a red flag. That's an indicator that my heart is focused on the wrong thing. I have attached my affections to the wrong thing. When we can't rejoice in the Lord, it reveals our focus is wrong. And oftentimes we don't even realize that until something difficult happens. And God uses those difficulties to help us see things that we have attached our affections to that we shouldn't. I mean, consider Psalm 4-7. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and new wine abound. This is a reality, Psalm 4-7. Psalm 16-11. You reveal the path of life to me. In your presence is abundant joy. At your right hand are eternal pleasures. Romans 14-17. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. If we're not rejoicing in the Lord, that tells us we're not walking in step with the Holy Spirit. And I know sometimes this is hard because we, it, it's hard for us to understand how we can be sorrowful and yet rejoicing. And yet the joy of the Lord doesn't compete with other biblical emotions. What it does is it becomes the foundation as we walk through those other emotions. Because it helps us to recognize the anchor for my soul is not these situations that's causing me sorrow. It's the Lord. Now, if we aren't on a regular basis experiencing the joy of the Lord, we're not walking in step with the Holy Spirit. This could mean a few different things. One, it can mean, just very plainly, we're not putting any time in the Word, any time in prayer or serving or whatever spiritual discipline we could mention. And for you, the realization needs to be, man, there's no joy. I just need to start spending time with Jesus. I need to build into my life the habit of reading my Bible and praying and fellowshipping with other Christians and serving the Lord. I mean, we could go on and on and on about all the avenues God has given us to experience joy. I need to be more intentional about building those things into my life. I need to intentionally spend time with Jesus. Or it could also mean, probably for more of us here, that we're just going through the motions of spending time with Jesus, but there's no faith involved. I mean, if you're like, well, Pastor Nick, I read my Bible and I pray every day, but I'm still a grumpy curmudgeon. <laughs> I was really proud of myself. I spelled that word right the first time I typed it in. If you're reading your Bible and you're praying every day, but you're more known for being angry or grumpy, and there's no consistent joy of the Lord in your life, that should be an indicator that something's wrong. I mean, are you reading your Bible correctly? There's a wrong way to read it. Are you reading it by faith, recognizing this is God speaking to me? Are you by faith believing that you are spending time in the presence of your Savior who loved you and died for you? Or are you just going through the motions of some duty that feels spiritual maybe your motivation is driven by my karma I'll do the spiritual duty to make sure God gives me whatever I want that ain't how it works <laughs> now don't get me wrong I'm glad you have those spiritual habits built into your life that is a good thing please don't hear what I'm not saying it's good to have those habits built into your life at that point I think it's easier for you to experience the joy of the Lord even though maybe I haven't been doing it by faith you have that habit built into your life so now the prayers Holy Spirit, help me to do this by faith. But joy is not an option. It's a command. Rejoice 
in the Lord is in the present tense, it's in the active voice, and it's in the imperative mood. What that means is Paul is saying, I command you to be always making every effort to rejoice in the Lord. How many of you are glad it just says rejoice in the Lord? But this is not an option for us. This is something that we always pursue, something that we are to do, a command to obey. God loves you too much to allow your experience of him to be a miserable drudgery. Because God is most glorified in us when we rejoice in him, when we rejoy him. Joy is a safeguard from walking with God for all the wrong reasons. George Mueller was an evangelist and an orphanage director in Bristol, England. If you ever read his biographies or what he wrote on prayer, uh, the, the man has an amazing testimony. He's famous for his tremendous faith and the fact that he cared for over 10,000 orphans over the course of his life. And joy was one of Mueller's first priorities every day. He wrote this, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how the inner life might be nourished. Now you read his testimony, the dude served the Lord. But he recognized, I can't go through the motions of all this work that I'm doing for God with the wrong motivation or the wrong driving factor. My first duty is to rejoice in the Lord. Joy keeps us safe from going through the motions of dead service. So if you aren't experiencing the joy of the Lord, don't chuck your spiritual habits and throw up your hands and be like, well, it's not working. <laughs> Keep those habits, but ask the Holy Spirit to glorify Jesus in your eyes in such a way that your heart grows, that this joy grows in your heart. Joy keeps us safe from false teaching and sin. When our hearts are so filled with joy for all that God has done for us, we don't need to look for satisfaction in lesser things. And in fact, when our hearts are full with joy for what God has done for us, we can see sin and we can see false teaching for what they really are. Dead, empty promises that have no power to fulfill. It's like when your heart is so full, sin and false teaching and these other things that we're going to be warned about in Philippians 3, they just have no more weight over us because our hearts are full with the joy of the Lord. A lack of joy reveals a spiritual deficiency in our walk with Christ. But let's not forget, joy is not a negative emotion. I want to be careful here that I don't talk about how joy guards us so much that we all leave here bummed out. Like, yeah, well, I gotta have joy in the Lord. <laughs> That's not the goal here. God wants us to be filled with joy. Being a joy-filled Christian is one of the many ways we can be like Jesus. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 9, God the Father says about Jesus, God the Son, you have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. This is why God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of joy beyond your companions. Jesus is the most joy-filled person or entity that ever was. Nobody has more joy than Jesus. So to be like him is to be full of joy. Now the command to rejoice in the Lord serves as a safeguard because it helps us know when I'm living like Jesus. It helps me know when I'm walking in step with the Spirit. So as we conclude this morning, I want to read several passages over us as a church this morning so that we can be reminded why we should rejoice. They're going to be up on the screens. Uh, I'm going to read them. We've read a lot together, so feel free to just listen. But I would encourage you to write these references down. And in those moments when you're like, I'm struggling, you open up your Bible to these passages and you say, Holy Spirit, would you make these come alive in my heart? Help me to believe these by faith over what I'm feeling. Help me to believe these by faith over my circumstances. Help me to believe 
this is the most true reality about me. Psalm 103, verses 1 through 4. The psalmist says, my soul, bless the Lord. All that is within me, bless his holy name. My soul, bless the Lord. And do not forget all of his benefits. He forgives all your iniquity. He heals all your diseases. He redeems your life from the pit. He crowns you with faithful love and compassion. Later in the same psalm, verses 8 through 13, the Bible says, The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in faithful love. He will not always accuse us or be angry forever. He has not dealt with us as our sins deserve or repaid us according to our iniquities. How many of you are thankful for that? (laughs) For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his faithful love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. 1 John 4.10, love consists in this, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Romans 8.31 reminds us that God is for us. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? Let that sink in. The almighty, powerful creator of the universe is for you. Not because we're great. (laughs) but because Jesus is in us. God took away the sting of death. 1 Corinthians 15, 54 and 55. When this corruptible body is clothed with incorruptibility, what a moment we look forward to. And this mortal body is clothed with immortality, then the saying that is written will take place. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where death is your victory? Where death is your sting? First Peter 1, 5 tells us God is guarding us by his power. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. When we think about all the amazing promises we have now, we can rejoice. But then Peter says, God is keeping you because there's better still coming. God forgives you of your sins. Colossians 1, 14. In him, we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We were dead in our sins, but God has made us alive. Colossians 2, 13 through 15. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us and has taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and disgraced them publicly. He triumphed over them in him. Now, church. Let's rejoice in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we love you. And our hearts are just so full with all the reasons that we have to rejoice in you. And I pray that as we conclude the service and as we leave here this morning, Lord, that we would be doers of the word and not just hearers only. Lord, I don't want to just get people emotionally excited in a moment about how amazing your grace is. There's nothing wrong with that, but Father... Your desire is that we would leave here and that we would genuinely rejoice in the Lord. And that tomorrow morning when we get up and we have to go to our jobs or go to our works or engage with our families, we would rejoice in the Lord. I pray that we would recognize the importance of it, the safeguard of it. And that we would be Christians who are known for their joy. Not because our lives are perfect, but because you're